So this morning, though, we got to get to work. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 24 through 37. I'll be on page 843 in your few Bibles, page 843. Having the page numbers, though, made me realize how slowly we're going. We're on the same page like five or six weeks, um, but so sorry about that. So we'll be on 843 again. Um, all right, to understand our passage this morning, remember what I've said um, a number of times. Um, We've got to remember what we talked about the last couple weeks, if we're going to understand this week. When studying the Bible, one of the most important things to do when trying to understand a passage is to read it in its context. All right? Context is key. You've got to know what comes before and what comes after a passage to better understand what that passage is about. And what comes before this passage really explains um, what is going on here. And it really kind of helps us to understand what, what we're supposed to learn about Jesus in these passages. So, if you remember, our previous two stories were the result of a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And remember, Pharisees, they're, they're the religious leaders, the, the Jewish leaders of the day. They did not like Jesus. All right? They didn't like um, either what he was doing, they didn't like what he was teaching, and that was in large part because he was teaching directly opposed to pretty much everything that they held dear and had been teaching themselves. So all of a sudden, this Jesus character, he showed up, and he has directly contradicted many of the core aspects of the Jewish faith. So, so last week, we, we saw Jesus attack the Pharisees' understanding of unclean things. Remember? They, they thought that there were these certain things that were unclean, and that if they ate those things, or if they touched those unclean things, then they would become unclean. Right, so remember, they thought that their problem was out there, remember? They thought that the problem was all the unclean stuff out there, and they got to make sure and keep that from getting in here. And Jesus just came up and then straight up said, you're wrong. <laughs> the problem's not out there. He said, listen, the problem's in here. He said, the problem is your heart. The problem is not the unclean stuff out there. It's, it's your unclean heart. And in the midst of all this, well, Mark makes this remarkable statement that we kind of had to skip over because of time. Well, at some point, I'll really get back and unpack this. Um, but at the end of verse 19, a few verses earlier, he says, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Now today, we just read over this and, and skip by like it's not that big of a deal. But, but back then, two Jewish people 2,000 years ago, this would have been about as big of a deal as possible. They, they were defined. They, they found their identity in large part from the fact that they didn't eat certain foods that all the terrible Gentiles ate. And in this case, they were simply following God's clearly revealed law in Leviticus 11. God had come to Israel and told them that there were certain foods that they were not allowed to eat. And then here is Jesus telling them that there's no unclean thing, and that now he's declaring all of these previously unclean foods clean. And so that's a huge statement to make to the Jews. Jesus right here is claiming that he has the authority over God's law. And that he is the one that understands and interprets God's law. So we saw him, remember, taking all of their traditions that they so valued, that, that so identified them, and he's just ripping them apart. Right? No wonder the Pharisees hated Jesus and wanted him dead. So we've just seen him teach that there are no unclean things. This morning, we are going to see Jesus make the equally offensive statement that there are also then no unclean people. No unclean things. This week, no unclean people. So again, we have a passage this morning. It's very easy just to kind of breeze over this passage. Oh, Jesus 
healed a couple people. Well, he does that all the time. No, it's, there's a lot more going on here than that. This is an extremely um, significant transition in Jesus' ministry. So, so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to see that these two stories teach us about the great compassion of Jesus, which we've seen over and over again. But this morning, I want to focus on how that great compassion is displayed particularly in who Jesus extends that compassion to. All right, The who is the key this morning. So as offensive as Jesus attacking their tradition, as offensive as demolishing their food laws was, what Jesus does here this morning would have been far more offensive and revolutionary. Right? Because it is in these two stories, and another that we'll see next time, that Jesus makes it clear by his actions that he, as the Messiah, is not just the Savior of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. Right? Let me read the passage, and then I'm going to come back and explain just why that is so significant. All right, so look there at Mark 7, 24-37, page 843. This is God's Word. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for the great compassion that we're going to see um, in him um, this morning. So I pray right now that you would focus our minds on what you want us to get out of this text. That your spirit would come and work um, through your word and apply these truths to our heart. Father, show us our sinfulness um, and show us your great salvation in Jesus Christ. And I just pray that we would leave here. This morning, I'm freshly appreciating what you have done for us um, through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, I, I, love, what, um, I love what Jesus does in the first verse. All right, Mark is very intentional with every word um, he uses. And I think he, he's very insulting here um, right off the bat. Remember, we just witnessed Jesus attacking the Pharisees' understanding of clean and unclean. He says there's, there's no unclean thing. And then what does Jesus do right away? Well, he, he says straight for the most unclean place that the Pharisees would have been able to possibly think of. All right, let, let me explain. We're told that Jesus heads to Tyre and Sidon. This, this is noteworthy because Tyre and Sidon are not in Israel. 
Right? This is the first time in the book of Mark that Jesus travels outside of the borders of Israel. And that would be significant by itself, considering how the Jews viewed themselves as compared to, to foreign Gentiles. But we're, we're going to come back to that. Jesus, though, he doesn't just go outside of Israel. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. Right? Tyre is about 50 miles northwest of where Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee. And Tyre was a very important, wealthy port on the Mediterranean Sea. Right? Tyre is in modern-day Lebanon, which is just up there on the coast, right above Israel. It, it's just got a fascinating history. It used to be, uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's so cool that I'm going to mention it. Um, Tyre used to be an island, right? And at the time of Alexander the Great, Alexander was just conquering everyone. That's just kind of what he did. He, he dominated everything. And so he gets to Tyre. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer Tyre. But it's an island, and they have their walls all the way up kind of to the water, super high, thick walls. There's nothing he can do. So what does he do is he takes months and months, and he just creates a landfill. He builds the land out to Tyre, basically. And that's why Tyre today is no longer an island, because Alexander basically built this giant dock out to it, just dumping land and land and land. And eventually, he got his troops to Tyre. He took it, and he sacked it and destroyed it. Just, just a fascinating story. He, he built land to conquer this city. But that, that's Tyre. It's a very significant city in ancient history. It's a very wealthy port on the Mediterranean Sea. And this, and this area just has a long history, if you go back and read the Old Testament, of antagonism towards Israel. In a war right before the time of Jesus, right, the people of Tyre and Sidon sided with another couple of nations and attacked and fought against Israel. Remember, I've mentioned this guy, the Jewish historian Josephus, a number of times. He writes all this important Jewish history, and he writes um, of the people of Tyre. He says that they were notoriously our bitterest enemies. Right? So Jesus has gone straight to the unclean, and he has gone straight to the enemies. Plus, Jezebel. If you know anything about Jezebel, Jezebel comes from Tyre and Sidon. In Sunday school this morning, we met um, Queen Jezebel. She basically was responsible for, for leading Israel um, away from God and to the worship of, of the false god Baal, right? with, with her um, husband, King Ahab. Right? So Israel, as a result of that, would collapse and be conquered and fall in the year 722 at the hands of Assyria, right? And they fell then in large part because of the influence of Tyre and Sidon through Jezebel, right? So, so the Pharisees and the Jewish people hate Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus goes straight to the Gentiles. He goes straight to a city that has long been the enemy of the Jews. And it was a city that was notorious for its wicked paganism, right? This in and of itself would have outraged the Pharisees. Um, in, in a collection of Jewish writings, uh, there, it's, this, this book is called the Psalms of Solomon. Right? Psalms, not the song, the Psalms. This is a different book. It's not scripture. It's written a lot later. But in it, um, the, the Jewish man who wrote this says this about the Messiah. He says that the Messiah would come to expel and to subdue and to punish the Gentiles. That's kind of what they were thinking at this time. But then here is Jesus claiming to be the Messiah going to visit, and as we're going to see, heal the Gentiles. So don't miss the significance of what Jesus is symbolically acting out here. Right? Jesus' ministry um, to Tyre and to the Gentiles, is, is, he's going to universalize the concept of the Messiah. Right? What Jesus starts to do here is, is going to break down the dividing walls of geography, ethnicity, and gender in a way that was unthought of 
um, in Judaism at that time. Remember, the Pharisees were just so consumed with their obsession over unclean things and how to avoid them. But at the same time, they were just as consumed with their obsession over unclean people and how to avoid them. And if you're not aware, everyone who wasn't a Jew, right, the Gentiles, that, that's the rest of us, were innately unclean simply by the fact that we were born Gentile. And, and if being unclean means being separated from God, then the Gentiles were inherently separated from God and under his judgment. So Jesus, right here, by going to the Gentiles, is specifically, again, attacking one of their core assumptions. Look back at the text. He arrives, he gets to Tyre, he's hoping to get a little rest, get a little break. That never happens with Jesus. He, he cannot be hidden. And then we're introduced um, to our, our interrupter. There, there's a woman. She, she's heard of Jesus. Um, she's got a serious problem. Her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. Now, I've done this before, so I'm not going to spend much time here. But if you're here with us this morning... Um, you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff. You, you may have an issue with this right here, right? Uh, who believes in demons in the United States in the year 2013, right? That's, that's so primitive. We're, we're smarter than that. We, we know better these days. But let me give you just a few quick thoughts about that. The vast majority of people, if you go read all the polls and talk to people, still believe that God exists, right? The vast majority of people at least believe that it is possible that God exists. So, so if it is possible that a good spiritual being exists, then it is perfectly logical to believe also that, that spiritual, evil spiritual beings exist as well. Plus, you just got to look back over the last hundred years of history to see that there is something more out there. Right? Are you really going to tell me that this short, fairly unimpressive man named Adolf, who was a terrible artist, was able to somehow convince an entire nation to participate in the merciless slaughter of millions of people. No, listen, evil exists. We all know it. There, there is something else out there. It is not that far-fetched to believe that evil spiritual beings exist. And that's what this woman is dealing with here um, in her little daughter. And this lady, she's at the end of a rope. She's probably tried everything. All the myriad of gods entire. I'm sure she's tried all these crazy different rituals. She, she spent all of her money. She, she's desperate, right? A mother with a, with a sick child will do anything for that child. And here she hears of this man. She's, you know, rumors been getting around about this Jesus guy. He hears, and she, she, she will not be stopped. And she goes to him. And look at verse 26. I love what Mark does here. Mark is specifically, he's piling up all of these things um, against this woman. He, he's listing in order all of these different things that would make her very unclean in the eyes of the Pharisees. She's a woman, right? 2,000 years ago in this culture, off to a bad start, right? Not, not a good thing. Um, she, she's a Gentile, all right? So as we've seen, she, she's unclean, not good. Not only is she a Gentile, but it says she's a Syrophoenician, right? Which just means she's from the area of Tyre and Sidon. So she's from the enemy, right? Woman, Gentile, the enemy, right? This lady has nothing going in her favor in the eyes of the Pharisees. But she's desperate, and she comes now to a Jewish rabbi, and she begs Jesus to help her daughter. Now, we've spent seven chapters with Jesus. We've been talking about Jesus since May. We're going over, seeing, working through this book. We've seen his compassion over and over again, his love and his kindness and his mercy. We've seen him heal everyone that comes to him. 
And then here, seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus says maybe the most unexpected and offensive thing in the Gospels. He says to this poor suffering woman, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa, right? Jesus, what are you doing here? What's going on? I, I read one feminist author this week who, who just absolutely ripped into Jesus for this one sentence. She, she makes the claim in this long kind of article, she makes the claim that the entire Christian faith falls apart because of these few words of Jesus. She argues that since um, central to the, to the faith of Christianity is the idea of Jesus as the sinless substitute taking the place of his sinful people, right? She says the fact of his statement here that it is so offensive that it must be sinful that Jesus then could not be sinless, and that he could not be our substitute, and thus the whole thing is, is a farce. That, that's, that's her argument. And that is quite the charge. And I obviously think that she is wrong, but that kind of serves to, to at least illustrate the magnitude of what is going on right here. Right? Why did Jesus say this? Was he just insulting her for fun? Well, what is going on? Why does he call this woman a dog? First off, the, the first thing that we can't do is that he can't do what some people have tried to do and just completely soften the blow here or try to explain away Jesus' words as not offensive, right? These words were definitely offensive, right? And they were much more offensive than we recognize because we think about dogs differently today than they thought about dogs back then. And we use the word dog differently, right? I'm not cool enough to pull it off, but... Dog is often used these days, right, to, to refer to one of your close friends, like one of your boys. He, he's, my, he's my dog, right? I never try it, I promise. I can't say it, I can't get away with it, I don't try. But, but the point is that, that, that we can use the term dog today with some, with some positive connotations. And secondly, our culture today has a very different understanding than the Jewish culture at that time of, of dogs. Today, everybody loves dogs. Everyone has a dog. We've got all of these different nice and cute different breeds of dogs, and they're generally clean and safe and well-trained, right? So people think highly of dogs today. That was not the case in Israel 2,000 years ago. Basically, every Old Testament passage in which dogs are mentioned illustrates just the loathing that the Israelites had for dogs. But again, don't be thinking cute little nice clean house dogs like we have today. Right? The dogs that we're talking about back then, these were big, wild, and dangerous dogs that roamed the streets. Right? We have a friend who's from Detroit. Is there anyone from Detroit in here? I don't want to insult Detroit. All right, good. So I can't insult Detroit. We always make fun of him being from Detroit because Detroit is terrible. Um, and so I read an article recently about how it was, it was in Rolling, it was in some big magazine. I don't know what it was. But the whole article was about how roaming packs of wild dogs were taking over Detroit, right, basically, because everyone was leaving. They leave their dogs behind, and then they just roam the streets eating things and attacking things, right? That's what's going on here. That's, that's the kind of dogs we're talking about here in Israel. Um, they, dogs were associated with uncleanness because they ate garbage and they ate corpses, right? It seems that every single time a dog is mentioned, in the Old Testament, the dog is eating a dead person. Right? It happens a number of different times. They're licking sores. They're, God prophesies about Jezebel that she will be torn apart and eaten by dogs. He prophesies about King Ahab that the dogs will, will lick up his blood off the ground. Right? The dogs are just treated in a very negative light in the Old Testament because big, wild, dangerous dogs. Right? So in, in rabbinic tradition, 
dog had became a term of reproach that was reserved for the most despicable and miserable of creatures. And then kind of later on, in this sense, it became quite common for Jewish rabbis at this time to refer to Gentiles as dogs. Right? One um, rabbi writes a little bit after Jesus. He says, the peoples of the world are like dogs. And at the same time, the Jews referred to themselves as the children of God. All right, so now here we have our terminology for Jesus' little parable here. The children of the Jews, right? the dogs are the rest of us. Right? The dogs are the Gentiles. And this woman, she would have known and been familiar with the terminology. She would, have, she would have known that Jewish rabbis refer to Gentiles as dogs. And here she was talking to a Jewish rabbi. Now listen, Jesus obviously doesn't think of this woman as a dog. Right? He obviously doesn't think of her as an unclean person. He has just spent much time and effort just demolishing their understanding of unclean things. Right? So he's not going to sit here and come here and be like, oh yeah, well, here's an unclean person. No. What he is doing is he, he is borrowing the terminology of the Pharisees, of the rabbis themselves, and he is using them in a parable. Maybe he always teaches in parables for the point of teaching this woman and, and, and testing her faith. Jesus does not think she is a dog. He is giving her an opportunity to, to answer and to respond. He is testing her. And he is not disappointed. Look at her response in verse 28. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Wow. What a response. And this is even bigger than we think. Because let me explain. We haven't had her in a little while, but we've seen a number of weeks ago that Jesus frequently taught in, the, in these parables. And if you remember, no one ever understood the parables. Even the disciples, they're always coming to Jesus. And they're like, hey, what are you talking about? Like, Jesus, can you explain this parable to us? Please. No one got them. And then here, all of a sudden, seven chapters into the book, we have a pagan Gentile woman. We have a dog in the eyes of the Jews. And she is the first person in the gospel, the only person in the gospel to understand the parable of Jesus. She answers and responds to Jesus in the terminology that the parable uses. No one else does what she does in the book of Mark. She understands the parable. And notice what her response is not. Right? She is not offended. It's not, how dare you call me a dog? I, I'm a person. I, I have rights. You should respect me. Other people today get offended by this for her, but she herself apparently did not get offended. And this is important, because what does she do? She concedes Jesus' point. She doesn't defend herself. She doesn't attack Jesus' premise. She basically says, okay, you're right, I'm a dog. And man, this is just great, because this, this directly ties to what we talked about last week. Right? Remember that nice, encouraging, uplifting sermon about how terribly sinful we all are and how helpless we are to do anything about it? You remember that? That whole long sermon about total depravity and our, our sinfulness? Were you offended at all by that sermon? And if you were, then this foreign, uninformed, Gentile woman gets it better than you. Because Jesus calls her a dog, remember? And he's testing her, and she passes with flying colors. She says, you're right. I am a dog. And I've said this over and over again, that to understand the good news, we've got to understand the bad news first. 
We said last week that if you're really going to be amazed by God's grace, by the great lengths that He has gone to to save you through Jesus Christ, then you've got to understand total depravity first. You've got to understand just how wicked your heart is, how separated from God you are, and how helpless you were to do anything about it. James chapter 4, verse 6, God says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Which one are you? Are you proud or are you humble? Are you offended by the biblical truth that you're not good enough and that you can't just choose God on your own power and save yourself? Are you offended by how the Bible refers to you as deceitful, wicked, sinful, and dead? Or are you like the woman here? Are you humble? Are you willing to admit your own wickedness and helplessness like she is? Are you willing to be called all of the things that the Bible calls you? Things that are far more offensive than dog. Because a humble, accurate understanding of your situation apart from God is so critical to understanding the gospel. If you're a pretty good person who can just be good enough and who can just choose God on your own power, then grace won't be that amazing to you. But if you know that you are sinful and powerless, if you know that you are a dog, that I am a dog, then God's amazing grace will astound us. And that's what happens here with this woman. She concedes Jesus' point. Sure, she says, whatever, I'm a dog. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Right? She gets the parable and she answers in the terms of the parable. Sure, I may be a dog, but even dogs get to eat the scraps that fall on the ground. And Jesus is just astounded by her response. He says to her, he says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In Matthew 15, we get, we get the, par the parallel account of this story. It gives us a little more information. In response to what she says, Jesus says in Matthew 15, he says, Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. It's the faith. Right? It's all about the faith. And remember a number of weeks ago when we talked about faith, we saw that it wasn't faith that saves us. All right, listen, guys, faith is not that big of a deal. Everybody has faith. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone is trusting in something. It's not about the faith. It is about the object of that faith, right? The woman's prayer is answered not just because she had faith, but because of who she had faith in. She understands Jesus' parable. She trusted that he was compassionate, that he was powerful enough to take care of her problem, and he was. And he has great compassion on this woman. But don't forget the key. All right, and we're going to come back to this. Don't forget who this woman was. Remember, we got, we're going to come back to this. Don't forget that she was a Gentile. She was a dog in the eyes of the Pharisees. Right? But let me look real quickly at our, at our next story. Then we're going to come back and tie those two things together. Look there at verse, at verse 31. Jesus, he leaves Tyre. He travels north about 20 miles up the coast to Sidon. Then we're going to see him. He, he travels east and he loops kind of up and around in kind of like a horseshoe shape and then comes down to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, back into Israel, but into the region, remember, that is called the Decapolis. Right? Jesus has been here once before. It's in Israel, but remember, it's a Gentile area in Israel. And when he arrives, some people come to him. They, they bring a man that is deaf and that also has some sort of serious speech impediment, and they beg Jesus to heal him. So look at 33 through 35. 
And, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he puts his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be open. That's really weird. <laughs> what, what, what is, what's going on here, right? This looks more like some sort of strange magic. We, we've never seen Jesus do anything like this before. In fact, I've specifically made the point a couple of times that Jesus doesn't have to do anything like this. That he has so much authority that he possesses the power that all he has to do is speak and it happens. And that's what he does every other time in Mark. So what is he doing here? Why all this, this strange stuff? Well, he's displaying his compassion once again here to this man. He's speaking to this poor man in the only language that this man understands. Jesus is signing to the deaf man. He can't hear Jesus' words. So Jesus is indicating to him by touch what he is going to do. First, Jesus, he just he touches him. And this is significant enough because there are few things more comforting than, than a tender touch. But it is so much more than just a touch. Because just like earlier with, with the leper and with the tax collector, Jesus, he's reaching out and he is touching someone who the Jews would have considered unclean. Which would have then made Jesus himself unclean. But that's exactly what these last couple of stories have been about. It's about Jesus completely wrecking the current Jewish understanding of unclean things and unclean people. Jesus says that there are no unclean things, and he heals and embraces unclean people here. He, he, he's turning their system upside down. But he is also compassionately ministering to this man in his need, in terms that this man would understand. The man is deaf, right? His ears don't work. So, so Jesus touches his ears to indicate that he's going to heal them. The man has a serious speech impediment. He, he may not have been able to communicate at all. His tongue does not work. So Jesus touches his tongue to indicate that Jesus is going to heal his tongue. And then as he did with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, he looks up to heaven to indicate to this man that his power comes from above, from God. And then and only then does he speak. He says, Ephetha, which just means in Aramaic, it just means be opened. And verse 25, 35 says, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus' great compassion for even this, this Gentile man, another dog, is displayed in his willingness to heal him. And once again, the people are, are astonished. They completely ignore Jesus' command to not tell anyone. And then, then I love what they say in verse 37. This is so good. They say about Jesus, he has done all things well. What a great summary of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He has done all things well. And this, I think, is an implicit claim to the deity of Christ. Is there anyone else in the world of which we can say that they have done all things well? I maybe do like one or two things well, and everything else I probably do pretty poorly, right? No one else can we say this about. It's only God that we can declare, Jesus Christ, that he has done all things well. And he shows us that in his compassion here this morning. So, so those are the two stories. But what do we do with them? How, how do we understand them in context? Is Jesus just kind of, these just two more kind of random healings? Um, but I, I don't think so. I think there's just a lot more going on here that we, that we can miss if we're not um, slow going about it. Look, look, context is key. 
Don't forget what these have come after. Jesus has dispelled the notion of unclean things. Here he's dispelled the notion of unclean people. And just don't miss how big this is. Because the Jews at that time, like we said, thought that they alone were the children of God. That everyone else, the Gentiles, were nothing but dogs. And the Messiah, they thought, he's going to come for God's children. He's going to save us, and he's going to judge all the wicked nations around us. And Jesus comes here, and he says, no. He says, he says you've missed it. He says, you have misunderstood the Old Testament. You have, you have skipped over some very clear and obvious passages. Jesus isn't rewriting the rules here. He is acting out what God had already promised for thousands of years in the Old Testament. That salvation was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. So Jesus, in doing this, he is expanding their tiny, restrictive circle. He's trying to teach them, by his actions, what they should have picked up on their own from the Old Testament. And what Paul, a few years later, will make crystal clear in his letters. Let me just read you a few of the places in the Old Testament that make this, this abundantly clear. Genesis chapter 12, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. God comes to Abraham. He, remember, he calls Abraham. He says, I'm going to make a people out of you. And he, he gives Abraham a promise. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says, I'm going to work through you to bless everyone. In Psalm 62, the psalmist asks God to be gracious and to bless Israel so that God's way may be known on earth, that God's saving power would be known among all the nations. In Isaiah 49, 6, God comes and says to his servant, who is Jesus, he says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Yes, God chose and worked initially through, through Israel, but, but he chose and worked through them in order to prepare the way for salvation of all the nations, Gentile as well as Jew. The Jews had forgotten this at Jesus' time. Jesus is, is reminding them by going to having compassion on and healing Jew as well as Gentile. He's acting out what Paul would state plainly a few years later. And Paul in his letters, he is adamant that there is now an organic unity of the people of God, both Jew and Gentile together. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There are not two bodies, Jew and Gentile. There are not two plans of salvation, law for the Jew, grace for the Gentiles. There is one. There is a unity. Paul makes this clear earlier in, in, in Ephesians 2.12. He writes to the Gentiles specifically. He's writing to us. He says... Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. One new man in place of two. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. 
And Paul makes this explicitly clear in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no longer any advantage or superiority or difference to being Jewish or Gentile. God has destroyed all distinctions in his kingdom. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul continues on there at the end of Galatians 3. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the flesh. He says, listen, it's not about being ethnically Jewish. He says, it's about being a part of my people. And that is done through faith. Through Jesus Christ. So if you are Christ through faith, then you are the offspring of Abraham. Right? We are, we are one. Right? He, he is making the two bodies into one. And that's what Jesus is symbolizing here in these stories. That's what he's making clear by his actions. He comes first, yes, and he spends most of his time with, most of his time with the Jews, but it doesn't end there. He, he says to them in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one people, Jew and Gentile together, the children of God. But the theology of some Christians today gets this so backwards. And they're basically just disagreeing with Jesus. Sorry, Jesus, uh, you're wrong. Sorry, Paul. No, not one flock. There's, There's two flocks. There are the Jews, then there's the church. God deals with the Jews this way, and then God deals with the church this way. It's two different plans, two different groups. But they're apparently not reading the New Testament. Right? Paul is clear that the dividing wall has been broken down. Two are now one. If we are Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. We have been reconciled into one body. God's children through the grace of God displayed at the cross. There is not Israel and the church. There is not plan A and plan B. There is not one salvation here and one here. There is one plan, one faith, one Lord, and one body. Not two. That is the clear revelation of Scripture. Oh, praise God for what Jesus is making clear in these two stories. Because he has not come just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. And that is great news for all of us because we are the Gentiles. Right? We talked about this a few weeks ago on International Sunday. God's plan from the very beginning was to save for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right? Not just one nation, not just one, but from every. So we see here Jesus' compassion extended to every type of person. And that's what he is making clear in our stories this morning that the gospel goes forth to the Gentiles as well. That he is reconciling in himself the two and making them one. It's not Israel versus the church. It, it is one body together. And this should give us great comfort. All both of these stories because this should remind you that there is no one too far off. There is no one too different. There is no one too sick too sinful, too helpless, or too unclean for the compassion of Jesus Christ. And I've, I've ripped into the Pope a number of times up here. But this week, there was a photo that went, went absolutely viral. Uh, and it was a photo of him warmly embracing a man who was horribly disfigured by, by growths and boils all over his body and over his face. It was, it's a great picture of love and compassion displayed to a man who, who probably has experienced little love and compassion in his life. But listen, that picture pales 
in comparison to what it looks like for Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, to take in and embrace wicked sinners like you and like me. Right? In God's eyes, apart from Christ, we look infinitely more dirty and hideous than that poor man looks to us. We, we cannot even begin to comprehend how a perfect, holy God looks on our sin. There is nothing lovely or commendable or meritorious in us, but he embraces us anyways. Jesus Christ comes in our stories this morning, and he has great compassion on a man and on a woman in great need. He, he provides for them. He, he cares for them. He heals them. And that would be significant enough, but don't forget who they were. They were dogs, right? In the eyes of the Jewish people, they were the unclean ones. They were hopeless causes. But praise God that Jesus Christ is particularly interested in hopeless causes. Jesus Christ goes after the sick. He goes after the weak and the outcast and the downtrodden and the alien and the unclean and the dog. He comes not for the, for the healthy, but for the sick. He comes not for the righteous, but for sinners which should be of great comfort to us because we should all cry out with Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 that we are the worst. We are the chief of sinners. If Paul can make that claim, then we should be able to make that claim as well. Let the great compassion of Jesus Christ in our passage this morning comfort you. Be encouraged by the boundaries that he breaks and the great lengths that he goes to for Gentile sinners like us. And make sure and read this passage in light of our passage last week. Do not divorce the two. Don't forget just how sinful and wicked our hearts are. Don't forget total depravity. Don't forget how much a perfect, holy God hates our sin. And honestly, guys, a real sense of your sinfulness before God, a real kind of sense and understanding of your need for forgiveness is one of the best signs and assurances that you are, in fact, a Christian. Right? What, what is counterintuitive about the Christian life and about sanctification and growth in grace, that sometimes as we mature and as we grow, God makes us much more aware of just how sinful we actually are. Right? So as you grow and as you become more godly and more like Christ, what ends up happening is you realize and become aware of more and more of your sin and just how wicked and how sinful you are. So that understanding of your own sinfulness inside your heart and of your need for forgiveness is a great sign and testament to me that you get it and that God's grace has done a work in your heart. But if you just walk around thinking, oh, no, I'm, I'm pretty good. I, you know, I've got things together pretty well, right? That's what concerns me. That's when I start to be a little bit worried, right? We should be the most open people with our own sinfulness because it's not about um, how good we are that saves us. We should be the most willing to confess our sin and our weakness because it's not about what we do and it's not about how good we are. It is about how good Jesus Christ is and about what he has done for us. So are you aware of your own sin? Or do you think of yourself as, a, as a, just a pretty good person? Because God hates our sin. But he has great compassion on us anyways. He still runs after and pursues sinners. He still saves and forgives sinners. And he does so by sending his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to take our place. Jesus dies so that we can live. 
Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If Jesus Christ was willing to go after the dogs, if he was willing to lay down his life for us, for sinners like us, the dogs, then we should take great comfort and know that he is a God that we can trust. There are no hopeless causes with Jesus Christ. There are no unclean people. You can never be too bad or too far off for the great compassion of Jesus Christ to come after you and to save you. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his great compassion and love for sinners. Father, we thank you that it was your plan from the very beginning um, to save a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We thank you for including us in your great plan of salvation. Father, we confess that we are dogs. I confess my sin. I confess that I have nothing to offer you, that I am not good enough, that I am not smart enough, um, that I do not make the right choices in my own, on my own power. Father, uh, we, we need you to step in and to save us. Father, I need your grace and your mercy. Uh, Father, I just pray right now that you would be working in this place. Father, I pray that we would understand our sinfulness and our situation apart from you. Father, that we would um, be shocked um, just by how um, wicked our hearts are and how far we have separated ourselves from you. But Father, I pray that you would just so much more clearly um, just show us your son, Jesus Christ. Show us his compassion. Show us his, his desire to save sinners. Show us his great love and mercy and grace. Father, and I pray that we would just be drawn to that, that you would draw us to you, that you would grant us faith and repentance, and that you would bring us um, back to life um, through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word and the blessing that it is to, to study it um, together. We pray that you would get all the glory and all the honor. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.